All right, if you would find your way back to your seats. We're going to be in the book of Genesis this morning. Um, well, we are coming off uh, just some really controversial months, uh, some months that have almost split our church, and so I just wanted to address it this morning. Uh, Packer fans, I'm sorry. I know exactly how you feel. A great team uh, destroyed by special teams, kicking, should be removed from football. Don't we all agree today? <laughs> You're like, I thought he was going to talk about masks again. <laughs> oh, that's exactly what I want to talk about all the time. Um, no, I joke, but uh, it is Jesus that unites us, and it's him that we want to praise this morning, and um, thank you guys for being here. Would you pray with me? Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll have an intro video, a uh, two-minute just kind of snapshot of the book of Genesis, and we'll dive in. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to open the word that you spoke, to know about you, and to know how we can be made right with you. God, I pray that you would guide my words through the power of your Holy Spirit, and my, my prayer this morning is that you would land them in our hearts. Help us to have faith like Abraham. Help us to see the one to whom he pointed to. And so, Holy Spirit, would you speak through me or in spite of me, but would you speak today, we ask. We're desperate to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis simply means beginning. It is the first book of the Bible written by Moses around 1440 to 1400 BC. Between Israel's exodus from Egypt and Moses' death. It's an origin story addressed to the people of Israel, but it really is the beginning of every person's story. Genesis begins with God in authority over all. From nothing he creates everything. Light, land, trees, animals, all of it is good and in perfect harmony. God creates man in his own image and gives them authority to rule over the earth, to sustain it and cultivate its potential. But something goes awry. Adam and Eve are commanded not to eat the fruit of one tree or they will die. The serpent enters the story, planting doubt into Eve's mind whether God's word is really true. Humans have a choice to trust God's definition of good and evil or to turn their hearts inward and decide for themselves. Adam and Eve disobey and are corrupted by sin. But sin doesn't just affect Adam and Eve. It breaks down the perfect order of the world and separates all of humanity from God. Genesis continues on, following the fallen descendants of Adam and Eve as they continue to choose their own way over God's way. But in the midst of humanity's unfaithfulness, God singles out Abraham to be his chosen representative to the world. God establishes a covenant with Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the world would be blessed. One day, a deliverer would come from his line to destroy evil at the source and bring redemption to a broken people. So this morning we're going to be in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15, but Genesis, the book, has 50 chapters in it. Uh, I bet a lot of you were able to read through it this last week, and so you're excited to see God's promise 
and covenant with Abraham and how it kind of shapes and forms the scope of all of the rest of the scriptures. Now, just to give you a little overview of the book of Genesis, if you want to understand the structure of Genesis, remember four events and four people. It kind of breaks into two parts, chapters 1 through 11 that has four events, creation, fall, flood, Babel. Those are the big things that are going on in the first 11 chapters. And then in chapters 12 to 50, four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, or Jacob and Jacob's son. So four events, four people. Chapters 1 through 11, and then chapters 12 to 50. Uh, make sense? Kind of put the whole scope, or Bible, or the book in, in, in scope for you? So, so look at Genesis chapter 12 and 15 today, and I want to show you how they inform and set the trajectory for God's saving plans for the rest of the Bible. Leading up to Genesis 12, we see that sin has entered the world and marred everything. And so the question then becomes, how is God going to make things right? And even though he promised a deliverer, back in chapter 3, verse 15, that we looked at last week, the, 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 the champion who had crushed the head of the serpent and in so doing have his heel bruised, we see that things have actually gotten worse rather than better. From Adam to Cain to Lamech to Noah, things have gotten so bad that God actually wipes out all of the humans other than Noah's family from the face of the earth. And we think, okay, with Noah, things are going to get better, but they don't actually get better. It leads to humanity's rebellion in chapter 11 and the city of Babel or, or Babylon. Rather than obeying God and multiplying and spreading over the earth and filling the, the world that God had made with God's image bearers or glory reflectors, humanity bands together to build a tower to make their own name great. In defiance of God, they don't want to spread. And so God shows up, scrambles their languages, and they are forced to spread out. It's here that God appears to a man by the name of Abram many, many generations later. And according to Joshua chapter 24, Abraham was an idolater who lived in the land of Ur and served other gods along with his father Terah and his brother Nahor. And this is what God says in Genesis chapter 12. It sets the trajectory for the rest of the Bible. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So God shows up in the life of this man named Abram, or Abraham. I'm going to use them interchangeably because that's just what we do. Uh, Abram was given a new name, Abraham, toward the end of his life, which means father of many. Abraham is 75 years old. He's not following Yahweh. He doesn't even know that that's God's name. In fact, the people of God don't know that that's God's name until 400 years later when he reveals it to Moses. He's following other gods in idolatrous land, but God in his grace and his mercy appears to him and calls him out from that. Why do I bring that up? I want you to see that the choosing and the election of God is not a New Testament concept, but rather something that is woven all throughout the story in the pages of Scripture. God's initiating grace in the lives of sinful, rebellious people began with Adam and Eve. Not people who have it all together, who get God's promises. Not people who are going to be perfect. We see Abraham is far from perfect. But people who need his grace, that he can show, shower it 
upon and, and show the world a different way to relate to him. Abram was no different. He was not a perfect man. And God shows up and says to him, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will bless you and make, a, make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now we see three things in this promise. First, God calls out Abram to a new land that he will give him. He calls him to leave his home and to go to a land that God will show. And he implies and hints that it will be his someday, but not fully promised until chapter 15. Second, God promises to bless him and to make a name great for Abram. So in contrast to what happened in the chapter previously in Babel or Babylon, where the people assemble to rebel against God and to make a name for themselves, here now God condescends to a man and says, I'll make your name great. And third, God promises to bless all of the families or the peoples of the earth through his blessing to Abraham. All of the families that were listed in chapter 10 and 11 are now going to be blessed by this man and his descendants. We see God's heart for the nations all the way back here. This promise shapes the rest of the Bible more than, um, and more than that, it shapes how God is going to redeem and restore and save humanity through this man and his family. So Abraham believes God in the sense that he obeys the voice and, and goes out. He follows God. He stakes his life on the promise of this God that he knows very, very little about. Keep in mind, in Abraham's day, there was no Bible. It wasn't written for another 400 or so years by Moses. And so how much does Abraham know of God? Maybe some of the oral tradition of God, their creator, has been passed down. But very little. God just shows up and says, I will bless you. I will give you a land. Follow me. And I'll bless all of the other peoples of the earth through you. Faith in this promise meant that Abraham would bank everything about his life on whether or not God was telling the truth when he made this promise to him. In a way, Abraham becomes the father of faith, showing us the nature of what true saving faith is, a belief that acts and banks your life on the promises of the God who made it. More on that in a minute. So a number of years go by where Abraham follows God. He leaves and he goes to this land. He spends a little bit of time sojourning in Egypt and it didn't go so well for him there. He comes back to the land. He and his nephew Lot split into different directions, and then he goes on a rescue mission to rescue Lot, and, and God's blessing is clearly upon him as he wins this battle. And on the way back, he meets a guy by the name of Melchizedek, a, a, a priest uh, of the Lord who blesses him, and he actually gives some money and, and tries to honor him. And then, at the end of all of that, we, we pick up the story in Genesis 15. The definitive point, I think, in Abraham's life. We read this in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So God appears to Abram after all of these things. Some years have passed since the initial promise, and he reaffirms his blessing on Abraham, and he says, Fear not, I am your shield, and your reward will be very great. What's Abraham's response? 
yeah, 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 God, I, I get that. But what gives? You promised that you will bless me and, and make my name great and make me a great nation. You promised to be my shield and to reward me, but I don't have any kids. How is my name going to be carried on if I don't have any children? Eliezer of Damascus, who's not my kid, is my heir, is my descendant. Now, if we think it's hard to battle with infertility in our days, and it is, it was exponentially more devastating in Abraham's day. To have children was akin to experiencing the blessing from the Lord. The way for people to have a great name was to pass on your name to your descendants and your heirs, and they would remember you. But he looks at his life and he says, okay, God, that's good and all, but what gives? Where are my kids? Now, in this moment, we might expect that God would smite him where he stands, or at the very least, give him a good tongue lashing. How dare you, you little human being, question me? How dare you question my promise to you? You're done. I'm done with you. I'm picking somebody else. Now, God would be well within his rights to actually do that, but he doesn't. He, he responds in a gracious and kind way that allows Abram to continue to interact with him and in doing, invites us to interact with him, not as a mighty smiter, but as one where we can bring our struggles and our challenges and our misunderstanding to and say, God, help me out here. Verse three, or verse four. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Talking about Eliezer. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram, he says, you will have a son and not just a son. You will have more descendants than the number of stars that you can count in the sky. Those are big words to say to a man who's probably well into his 80s and doesn't have kids. We might expect Abraham to inspect the situation and say, yeah, fat chance of that happening, God. I mean, not many of us are looking to start families in our 80s, are we? Most of us would have long ago given up hope on having a child, having a son, having any heir that we can pass our name on to. But Abraham, his response is beautiful. Look at verse 6. Such an important verse in the scriptures. He says, And he, Abraham, or Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. This is one of the key verses in all of the scriptures. Both in Romans chapter 4 and in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul points back to this exact verse as a way to repeatedly explain that God's great work of salvation has always been by faith and not by works. Abraham believed what God said to him in this moment. He believed his words, he believed God's promises, and he banked his life and his future on God's promises. And what does God do for him? He credits that belief, he credits that faith to Abraham as righteousness. This is an accounting term, so to speak, crediting to his account righteousness. Why? Because of his faith, his belief in the promise that God made. 
One of the core essential questions that every philosophy or every religion on the earth must answer is, how can we be made right? Or how can we be made right with God? How can we overcome our sin and our folly or our rebellion? And some people would say, most religions boil it down to this. It's, it's through hard work and moral improvement. It's through keeping laws and commandments and living a good moral life. According to Islam, it's following the five pillars of Islam. According to Buddhism, it is the eightfold noble path to enlightenment that, that you do in order to be restored or to be made right. Or as many Americans who claim to be Christians believe, it's by loving your neighbor as yourself and someday hoping that at some point your good outweighs your bad. I say so many Americans who claim the name of Christ actually believe that. They believe that God will judge us someday. And the way in which he judges us is that there are these cosmic scales out there. And all of our good will be on one side. And all of our bad will be on the other side. And if our good outweighs our bad, then we get in. There's a problem with that. The Bible doesn't teach it at all. Not even a little bit. Not even with the advent of the law. No, that is actually the, the furthering of this promise that God makes to Abraham. How is Abraham restored or made right with God? How is he seen as righteous in God's sight? He believes. He puts his faith in God and in God's promises. And God takes that faith and credits it to him. He, he gives to him as a gift righteousness. He believes God and takes him at his word. Now, God will reveal more and more through the prophets, and then ultimately, a couple thousand years later, through his son. And so we today have more to respond to, more to believe, more to trust than Abraham did in his day. We see with greater clarity what Abraham only saw dimly. But the basic response from us is the same. This is why Abraham becomes known as Father Abraham, who has many sons, not so that we can just do a goofy dance in kids' church. Now, how many here have sung the Father Abraham song? Admit it. And the other ones are like, what is he talking about? It's this weird, goofy song that we teach to our kids about how Abraham, how God fulfills this promise to Abraham, and you get all crazy and everything like that. But the reason why he's called Father Abraham is that he shows us the nature of what true saving faith is. Faith is believing God and banking your life on his word and on his promises. It's a faith that not only intellectually believes in its truth and affirms that, but one who actually responds and lives like that promise is true. One that believes to the extent where he actually leaves where he's at and goes where God tells him to go because he believes God's promise. As Christians... We believe the good news about Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and God counts it to us as righteousness. He credits it to us as righteousness. We are given the perfect righteous life of Christ through faith like Abraham's in the promise that Jesus makes, that Jesus becomes the sacrifice for our sins, that God receives through our faith and then credits or gifts us Jesus' very righteousness. He puts it in our account. He chooses to see us through Jesus' glasses, as it were, or the lens of Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ in the New Testament. It means everything that Jesus has done is now mine by faith. That's good news. That's really good news for sinners like me and like you. And Abraham shows us that God has always saved his people 
not by their works, but by, the, by their faith and trust in his promises. And that that faith and that trust works in the everyday stuff of life as we live like it's true. Now God continues to extend and affirm his promise to Abraham now in verse 7. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So if you're tracking up to this point, God has promised him an heir and numerous descendants. Now God affirms what was only hinted at back in chapter 12, that the land he sent Abram to, he and his descendants will one day possess. And so Abraham asks once again, how will I know that this is true? Now, in some ways, this seems like a lack of faith, but it's simply asking God for clarity, for a sign, as it were. And God, once again, is gracious in his response. He responds by clarifying the promise that he makes, telling him about how he will deliver it in the future, and performing a covenant ceremony with Abraham that was very culturally meaningful and relevant to him in his day, and a bit foreign to us And we see this in verses 9 to 21. So I'm going to read it, and then we'll we'll, kind of unpack what's happening. He said to him, God says to Abraham, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Anybody do that this week? Okay, good, good. That would be a little weird. What is going on? As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And yes, that's how you pronounce all of them. And so Abraham carries out what seems to be a grisly ceremony by going and cutting some animals in half and then falls asleep and has a vision after he chases the animals away from eating it. In the vision, God says, all of these things, this land I will give you, but I will give it to your descendants 400 years from now. They are going to go and sojourn and live as slaves in this particular land. You will die in peace in a good old age, but I will be with your descendants, and at the appointed time, I will bring them out and fulfill this promise that I've made to you in them. I will make them a mighty nation and give them this land as an inheritance, but I need to wait until the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. They're storing up judgment that will be meted out then. And that's the story, actually, that we're going to pick up next week as we look at the book of Exodus. So just a little spoiler for that. It's interesting to note that 
that the promise that God gives to Abraham, the reassurance that he gives to Abraham, is in no way saying, Abraham, you're going to have an easy life. Or you get all of this now. He says, no, actually, I'm going to delay fulfilling that promise so that your generations, 400 years from now, will have it. You'll live a good old life, but this promise that I make, you won't actually see the fulfillment of. Sometimes we wrongly believe that faith in God means that our life is going to be easy or that we get it all now. All the hard things are going to go away. And in some ways that's true, and in some ways that is completely false, isn't it? In some ways we have peace and, and a sense of strength that we, we never had before. We experience a, a, a coherence of life that, that was completely foreign to us. And so in some ways life is so much easier with God and believing his promises. And yet... Sometimes our faith makes life a lot harder too, doesn't it? Because we live in a world that is broken, that has been tainted by sin, and that is in active rebellion against this God. And so as we seek to find him, sometimes, or seek to follow him, sometimes that puts us in the crosshairs of people who want nothing to do with him, and our life actually gets way more complicated and hard. You know what I'm talking about? Abraham's life is no different He believes God. God makes these promises to him, and yet he still has to walk out faith. And as you read the rest of his story, you see that he does pretty well, and he does lousy. He does pretty well, and he does lousy. But to actually understand this particular passage, I just want to bring your attention to what a covenant ceremony is. It's filled with incredible symbolism, even though it's a little weird to our eye. See, a covenant, which is what God is going to do with Abraham here, is a relationship between two parties involving permanent commitments or faithfulness on behalf of both parties, loyal love and obedience one to the other. It's a formal agreement or a relational contract, as it were, usually between two kings or between any two people. Often in a covenant, one of the kings or one of the sides is stronger and the other weaker. They would agree upon the terms of the covenant, And then in a covenant ceremony, they would do this to seal the deal. It was often called a cutting of the covenant because it involved the sacrifice and the shedding of blood. It was like their way of swearing an oath or swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. They would sacrifice some animals and cut them in half. And during the ceremony, the kings, as they agreed to the terms of the covenant, would both walk through the middle of these split-in-half animals. It was a formal and vivid way of saying, if I don't keep my side or my terms of the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. You want to talk about a memorable object lesson. Can you imagine walking through these bloody, grisly carcasses and say, if I don't keep my end of the bargain... May this fall upon me. You wouldn't enter into a covenant like that lightly, would you? But sometimes, rather than both kings walking through the animals, only the lesser or the weaker of the kings would do that, the one who had more to gain from this particular partnership. So in this covenant that God is making with Abraham, let's just take a note of a few things. What were the parameters or the agreements? God offers these terms to Abraham. I will make your name great. I will give you more descendants than you can number. I will give you a land to possess. I will put my blessing on you, and through you I will bless all of the other nations of the earth. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? So what's the catch? What does God require of Abraham? What are the terms? Believe it and live like it's true. Believe me. Leave your land and live like it's true. 
And Abraham does. He exercises faith and banks his life and his legacy on the promise. But what happens next in verse 17, and I already read it, it's actually mind-blowing if you understand how covenants were done. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. What in the world is happening here? What we would expect is that Abraham, who was the weaker person in this particular agreement, that he would be the one that would walk through the animals. I mean, after all, he's the one who gains everything and, and, and is, very little is asked of him. He's receiving far more protection and promise than he gives. But what we see is a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. These are actually symbols of God himself. And what does God do? In this vision, it is God Himself, the most powerful of all kings, that passes through the pieces. Now, what is God saying as He does that in this covenant ceremony? Don't miss this. God, as the more powerful king, says to Abram, Even if you don't keep up your end of the bargain, even if you and your descendants fail to exercise proper covenant faithfulness to me, let all of the curses of this covenant fall on who? On me. Guys, some of you guys think that the good news is only preached from the New Testament. As if the Old Testament, there was this angry, demanding God and this law that people had to obey in order to be saved. Guys, this could be, there's nothing further from the truth. This is astounding. This is incredible. This is good news. One of the most amazing promises ever. If you don't keep up your end of the bargain or your descendants don't, Abraham, let all of the curses of this fall to me. The rest of the Bible can be boiled down to this. God keeps the promise he makes to Abraham right here. He blesses him. And he blesses his descendants. He rescues them from the land of Egypt and gives them the very land that he's in. He makes them into a mighty nation. He gives them his law and his commandments so that the rest of the world would, would see what life under the rule and the reign of God is like and experience the blessing of that. And even when his people fail to keep the terms of the new covenant in uh, on Mount Sinai under Moses, when they don't obey the law, they don't live in faith before God, the worst of the curses of that covenant fall on God himself. Because out of Abraham, one of his descendants, would come a man named Jesus, who was God himself. And all of the other peoples of the earth would be blessed because the curses of this covenant fell on him. His name's Jesus. And it is him that this promise points to. Now, we would expect that Abraham, from this point on, is the picture of godliness. That he gets it right from here on out. Represents God's well to the surrounding nations. Spoiler, he doesn't. He keeps on sinning. And his life is a mixed bag of faith and of doubt. You might then expect, well, maybe his sons, his descendants get it right. They're more godly than him. And as we turn the pages in Genesis, we read about Isaac and Ishmael and Esau and Jacob and Joseph and Judah. And we think, man, this family that God promises to bless is messed up. 
Not one of these guys is righteous. Not one of these guys actually is going to fulfill this promise. And yet as the story of Genesis unfolds and the Bible unfolds, you see that it doesn't actually depend upon Abraham or Jacob's performance, but on a God who makes and keeps promises. So what? So what does this particular passage that happened over 4,000 years ago have to do with us today? What do we learn from this promise? I, I have three things for you. First, we see God's heart for all of the nations and all of the peoples on the earth. God is going to bless Abraham and his descendants, yes, but through his descendant, whose name is Jesus, he's going to bless all of the families and the nations of the earth. What does that mean? That means most of us, I'm guessing, in this room are not Jewish in our origin. That means that this is really good news for us, Gentiles, who have been grafted into the promises so that we can call Abraham father as well because of the finished work of what Jesus has done. It also means that we are to reflect God's heart for all of the peoples of the earth. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but in a lot of ways, we're different than some of the peoples of the earth, right? Maybe you've heard, but in the last couple of years, we've talked a lot about race, ethnicity, skin color, culture, distinctives. And people have some opinions about that. I don't know if you've heard, but let me share with you the Bible's opinion about that. God loves all of the peoples of the earth, and in Jesus Christ, this promise that God makes to Abraham is for all of us as we're united together in a spiritual family that's no longer defined by ethnicity or race, but now by the blood of Jesus Christ. How that works itself out, there can be differences of opinion on. That that's true and that that should define the people of God is not up for negotiation at all. We see God's heart for all of the peoples of the earth right here in the very beginning. Second, we see that God makes and keeps promises even at great cost to himself. This is perhaps the big idea of the passage. God makes this incredible promise to his people, and the way that we are to respond to that promise is by faith, belief in God's word and promises. God doesn't make these promises because he has to, but because he is gracious and kind, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and mercy. Abraham didn't deserve it any more than anybody else did. God simply chose him, and he responded in faith. And when Abraham and his descendants were unfaithful to God, what happened? God, in his love and mercy, entered as a descendant of Abraham and allowed the worst of the judgment to fall on himself. Jesus came, he lived, and he died, taking upon himself our unfaithfulness so that we might be saved by his grace. The way that we tap into that grace is through faith or trust that what he did was sufficient. And third, here Abraham provides a model for us, not of perfection, but of true saving faith. And so my question then is, have you exercised faith in God's promise and invitation like Abraham? Have you trusted the promises that God has made in Jesus for forgiveness and for salvation? Have you put your faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone, staking your life and eternal life and destiny on that not your own good works. 
See, often we think that it is our sin that separates us from God, and it's true. But one of the worst kinds of sin is a smug self-righteousness that doesn't acknowledge our need for God. And often, a lot of us, under the guise of Christianity, are working out that self-salvation project, thinking that I'm good enough and that God gets a good deal when he gets me. Why would we do that? Well, there's something deep down in us that wants to believe that I'm better, that God needs me, and that if that's true, there's no limit to what God could ask of me. Or there's, there's a limit to what God could ask of me. There's a limit, sorry. There's a limit to what he could put into my life and be fair. I have rights, as it were. But that's not how God relates to us. He relates to us by his grace and his mercy that we need to freely confess our need and believe in the sufficient salvation he has provided in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it is not the sincerity or the quality of your faith that saves you but rather the object of your faith, Jesus, who saves you. If you put your faith in anyone else or anything else, it will let you down. Now, this doesn't mean that the strength or quality of your faith counts for nothing. Maybe let me give you an analogy that might be helpful. Imagine that two different people are going to fly from Minneapolis to Orlando. And one of those people that's going to fly is a is a business traveler who's done this a thousand times. Like he's in the elite of the elite, gets to board first, is in first class, everything goes well for him. And the other person that gets, that, that's flying on this particular flight is an 88-year-old grandmother who's never flown a day in her life. But her grandkids live down in Florida. And the, the, the call and the allure of the grandbabies has finally helped her to overcome her fear of flying, and she's going to get on that plane. And so, the business traveler gets on the plane, kicks back his super reclinable chair, and sleeps the whole time. Every once in a while, he's woken up by the flight attendant who gives him something to eat or drink that you would actually want, and he enjoys his, his flight. The grandma, on the other hand, has done her research, and she has picked this airline because this airline, of all of the airlines, is the safest by point. Zero, 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 one percent. And she studied her physics. She's very familiar with Bernoulli's principle and how it works and how aircrafts can fly. And she's read her safety information card. And she's sitting in the back of the plane. And she is white-knuckling it the whole time. And any little bump or dip of turbulence, she shouts out, shrieks, thinking, we're all going to die. And everybody looks at her. And when the stewardess or the flight attendant comes by and says, hey, would you like something to drink or a snack? She can't even think about it because she'll vomit. Now, which one of those two people had a better flight? Business traveler, right? You're like, sounds great to me. Which one's got there to Orlando? Both of them. I'd like to suggest that one person had a very high quality of faith. He had great faith to the point where he didn't even think about it. He just slept. The other person had very little faith. But it was not the quality of their faith that got them to Orlando. It was the plane. 
the object of their faith. Might I suggest to you, whether you have great faith in Jesus or just a little faith in Jesus, it is he who provides salvation and gets you eternal life. But you're going to enjoy the ride a whole lot better if you learn to trust him more and more and more rather than white-knuckling it all the way through life. Is that helpful? It's not the quality of faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. And yet, your faith is going to really help you experience the journey in a lot smoother way. Not because things aren't going to happen. There might be a lot of turbulence, in fact. But rather, there is a settled faith in that object that will see you through. And then, by the grace of God, both of us land in Orlando not this God-forsaken cold place. <laughs> Any amens? <laughs> so why not have faith in the promise-making and promise-keeping God who shows the greatness of his character and his kindness by taking the worst of our failures into himself and giving us his best? That, my friends, is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the greater son of Abraham that this story points to. Next week, we're going to pick up where God makes this promise to that generation 400 years later. We're going to pick up the book of Exodus and see God begin to fulfill his promises that he makes right here under, under Moses and as the people leave the, the place of Egypt. I would encourage you this week to pick up the Bible and read the book of Exodus. It's 40 chapters long. And let me, let me warn you, there are some uh, detailed instructions about uh, threads and how to make the tabernacle in just such a way. There are some detailed and obscured commandments that are maybe going to, you're going to have to slog through. But even those things are teaching you something about God. He is revealing something in that. Let me do one better. Let me encourage you to maybe show up at a city group this week. Our city groups are actually journeying through these books ahead of time, watching overview videos and doing a Bible study so that next week when we open up to Exodus 20 and we look at the Ten Commandments that reveal the character and the heart of God, we're like, yes, I can't wait. It's amazing how the Bible, even though it was written over the course of 1,500 years, a long time ago by a bunch of different authors, is unbelievably relevant to your life today. I want to close our time together by, by looking at another covenant ceremony that we do all the time. The Lord's Supper is the covenant ceremony of the people of God, the New Testament people of God. Jesus, as he is initiating it, says this is the blood of the new covenant, or this is the new covenant which is in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and eat it in remembrance of me. And so this meal actually is like a covenant reaffirmation ceremony where we remember the terms of the covenant. What are the terms? God in his grace and mercy sent his son to bear the curses of the covenant and give us all of the things that he did on our behalf. Why do we do this over and over again? Why, I mean, Abraham did this once, and it was good. Why do we as Christians do this over and over again? I, I think it's a lot like eating and drinking. You see, you and I have a tendency to forget. 
hardwired into us is this default understanding that if I do good, God will bless me, and if I do bad, God will smite me. And we don't realize that the way in which we relate to God is by believing his promises, by trusting in his promises. And so God gives us something connected to eating and drinking that we might never forget. His body broken for us and his blood shed for us, taking all of the curses of the covenant so that we might have all of its blessings. And so together we remember Jesus' body broken and his blood shed by the symbolism in the bread and in the cup. If you're here this morning and if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a faith that's similar to Abraham, that banks your eternal destiny on him and even your life now, then you're a Christian and you are welcome at this table. We would love to celebrate this with you and remember the body of Jesus broken and the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, then really I have two options for you. One is I would love for you to choose him today. For you to exercise faith like Abraham and trust God today. Trust that what Jesus did, he actually did for you. Confess your unworthiness before the Lord and believe in him. And if you do that, you're welcome at this table. However, if you're here this morning and you're like, I'm just not there yet, Pastor Kyle. I just want to say I really am glad you're here. In fact, I applaud you for, for seeking these things out and wrestling through these hard questions. This is a safe place for you to wrestle through those things. If you remain in your seat, we're not going to judge you. In fact, if it's not true about your life, if you're not ready or at that point, I would ask that you would stay in your seat and just let this pass and possibly ponder this invitation of Jesus to you. And if that's you, I would love to chat with you. A lot of the people around the room would love to chat with you as we've wrestled through that question as well. But let's turn our hearts to the table. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this meal that reminds us of your grace and your mercy. I pray that as we eat and as we drink, we would remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us. I pray that as we do this together, we would marvel at all of the sinners, us included, that you have done this in our lives. I pray, God, that you would increase our faith, that you would encourage our faith today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.